We're looking firstly, if you'll notice in your bulletin outline, a reason for your confidence in God. A reason for it. Christianity is a religion of reason as well as of faith. In many of the religions of the world, the devotees are expected to adhere to the tenets of their religion on the basis of what is called blind faith. Blind faith says something like this. Do not ask questions. Do not probe. Do not investigate. Just accept what is taught to you as the truth. Believe it and act upon it. End of story. It is the notion that if we try to figure things out, if we try to reason through them to see the logic or the purpose or the plan or the goal of God, then we cannot possibly be people of faith. It's like one is pitted against the other. So here's a question for you. Is faith opposed to reason? These critics would say, yes. But you know, God in whom we are to have faith invites us, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Isaiah 1, verse 18. Last week we talked about the truth that man is created in the image of God and part of that image is man's capacity to reason, to think things through, to come up with knowledgeable decisions. It is part of our makeup to try to discover why we have to do things a certain way or how someone else did what they did, including God. And usually we voice our inquiries with the question, why? Why? If you've ever raised children and you've got them to the toddler stage, you are going to find out about the question, why? Why? Why is the sky blue? Well, there's dust. Why is there dust in there? Well, the sun shines in the. What's the sun? And on and on it goes. Why, 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 why? This is part of our human nature to want to know, to know, to know. Well, many times the biblical authors volunteer the why by stating their reasons for doing things up front or the reasons behind their thinking. Let me give you some of these. In John 5.18, John writes, For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that is in their view, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the reason the Jews wanted to kill Christ, one of them is that he claimed equality with God the Father. They saw that as blasphemy. That was the reason behind their plot. Again, John writes in John 10, and this is, Jesus speaking, the reason my father loves me, says Jesus, is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. John 10 verse 17. 
a forfeiture of his own life on the cross. No one took his life from him. He gave up his spirit, you remember, but also that he might take it again. It's a hint there of the resurrection. The reason my father loves me. Paul, after praising Timothy's godly attributes to the Corinthian brethren, says, For this reason I'm sending to you, Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17. And if you read the context, it says, I don't have anyone else like him. He's just such a jewel. I'm sending you the jewel that I have. I can't come to you, but I'm going to send you Timothy because he is going to be uh, faithful to the Lord. Concerning Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, admonishing them to discipline a man that was living in incest, here's what he says. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 9. Obedience to Christ, you see. Again he writes, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus... And your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Written to the Ephesian church, Ephesians 1, verse 15 and 16. Even when explaining the change in the covenant between the old covenant and the new, the writer of Hebrews states, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And for this reason, it can never, by those same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, the animal sacrifices, it can never make perfect those who draw near to God to worship. Hebrews 10, verse 1. Peter talks about the exceeding great and precious promises of God. And then he concludes, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Second Peter 1, verse 5 through 7. So you see, time and again, the biblical authors or teachers, including Jesus himself, give reasons for what they have taught or what they have done. It's not a blind faith. It is a reasonable faith. It is not a leap of faith. As though we get to a precipice and we can't go beyond that with figuring things out. So, oh, well, okay, yeah, I'll just leap over there and trust the Lord that what He said is right and true. No, it is a logical faith. They want their hearers to know that there is a rationale, an intelligent purpose behind their conduct or what they are asking others to do. It is not their goal to mask things in darkness and mystery and then say to their hearers, just believe, just believe. Don't ask questions, just believe. Peter, you remember when we studied the Peter series, says that we ought to be ready to give a reasonable answer for the hope that lies within us need to be ready to do that. Secondly, you can know what God wants you to know, but not what He withholds. Now I put this point in here because it's important for us to know that God is under no obligation to tell you why you're going through certain things. 
He may tell you. He may give you a reason. Or he may not. We have no authority to demand of God that he answers us when we ask, why? The silence of God, think about this, the silence of God may be part of his plan and an integral ingredient to your sanctification. Maybe you're a know-it-all and you just, that's the way you are. You just have to know all the details and you have to get in there and you have to figure God out right to the last degree. And, and he says, you know, I'm not telling you everything. Maybe it has to do with your impatience. How long, O oh Lord, how long, says the psalmist. And I'm looking at my watch. I'm looking at the calendar. I've been going through this days, weeks, months. And God is saying, patience, patience, patience. You will recall that neither Job nor his wife or any of his friends were told by God why Satan was allowed to afflict Job with impoverishment and then secondly with his loss of health. He was never told. In fact, the book closes with God questioning Job. But not with explaining to Job all the intricacies as to why he had to endure such suffering. It's never explained. And I would add that it wasn't for Job's lack of trying to find out. We have it in the book. He says in Job 13.3, But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. See, he doesn't like the silence. Or again, he says, if only, if only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I, I, I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Job 23, verse 3-5. No answer from God. You see, he's saying, I would prefer a face-to-face -face with God to air my complaints as to why I'm suffering like this. And then again, in Job 31, we're getting towards the end of the book, and he says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Ooh. He's really frustrated here. No answer. Time and time again, Job sought answers from God as to why he was experiencing this trial. But heaven was silent until the closing chapters of the book. And even then, Job's pride is humbled as God questions him for his complaints. When in fact, Job had no concept of the bigness and the power of God as he controls what? The universe. And those closing chapters are all about how God controls earth, stars, planets, 
universe. It was as though God was saying, you know, I govern the universe, but all you're concerned about is yourself. I know what I'm doing. You do not. I have not forgotten you. Leave it there and trust me. The message of Job to Job. God will sometimes say the same thing to you in your inquiry. You want to know, and so you pray for answers. But the heavens are brass. Nothing seems to penetrate. God appears to be deaf or unconcerned. And that is God's way of saying to you, trust me. Leave it with me. Leave it alone. God does not always share His secrets. There is mystery to God. You're not intended to figure Him out. At other times, He tells us what He's doing and why. This we find in His Word in the form of general principles that may apply to your case or may not. This will still net us some lack of peace if God gives you no reason for what you are experiencing, but then you are to take your hope in the fact that God has made precious promises of security and care and love to you that He has given to no other people on earth but unto His own people that believe in Him. And by the way, that's what Dan's class is all about. In the adult class, you all need to be here to learn of that as he works through the precious promises of God. Dovetails in greatly with what I'm doing in morning worship. Well, that brings us then to the second point in the bulletin outline there. God's reasoning behind your trials. Now, this is not exhaustive. Man, I could preach weeks and weeks on his reasoning. I'm trying to hit some of the highlights here. Number one, to prove God true and Satan a liar. Or God Almighty and Satan defeated. It cannot be denied that the trial Job experienced was one of the most demanding and most extensive recorded in biblical history. Forty-two chapters devoted to Job's suffering. How'd you like to have 42 chapters written about your life of suffering? They have to go through 42 chapters of living in suffering. This predates all of the other Old Testament books, including Genesis. Most scholars believe that Job is the oldest book chronologically in the Bible. Not where we stick it in the pages, but where it is actually. What the man went through in one day, you have not gone through in a lifetime. And what he went through in one day would make most of us question our loyalty to God and his loyalty to us. 
It is said of Job, verse 3, He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Great in what ways? Well, great in wealth. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoken of uh, oxen, that would be 1,000, 500 donkeys, a large number of servants. He was great in wealth. Money to burn, we would say. Secondly, he was great in family. He had 10 children. That's a pretty large family. Number three, he was great in friends, four of whom dedicated a goodly portion of their time and energy to try to comfort him in his trial. Now it's true, we just read a text this morning where he said, calls them miserable counselors because, you know, they wanted to think of him as getting what he deserved. The reason you're suffering is because God's punishing you for sin. That wasn't the reason at all, as we're going to learn just shortly. But at least they try. They, they came out of, the, out of their homes and they however long they stayed there. Oh, but Job was great in the best way you can be great. God's own testimony of him was this. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God, which means he reverenced God, and he shunned evil. Chapter 1, verse 2. Wouldn't you like that written over your life by God? Here's a man, here's a woman that is blameless and upright, who reverences God and hates evil. In other words, Job lived his faith. He was not an armchair Christian philosopher. We cannot find him more honest, more sincere, more righteous man at this time in history and the very least of candidates for the punishment of God, if one thinks that way. He was not sinless, however. He had his moments of complaint. We read some of those, murmuring, questioning, even arrogance. It's all in the book. You can read about it. But what I want you to see is that his story is not so much about how loyal he was to God, but how his loyalty to God was based on God's grace and love to him. And not on his good fortune. Not on his good fortune. You see, the accusation of Satan concerning Job's integrity was this, and we have it here. Job 1, verse 9 and following. Does Job fear God for nothing, says Satan? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You blessed the work of his hands, but, but, Stretch out your hand and strike him, everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. We hardly think about the battle for men's souls which rages in the heavens every day. Job was part of that battle in his day. God praised him for his blamelessness and Satan said, his loyalty to God was due to God's protective hedge around an already blessed life. And we read some of those blessings, how wealthy he was, how respected he was, and so on. Now if this were true, then Job deserves no more praise or appreciation than any other man. I mean, just think about it. God could just as easily have plucked any man off the street, blessed him with money, wealth, influence, a loving family, copious amounts of friends... And voila! I mean, who wouldn't adore God for all of that? And so, 
God took up the challenge. God agreed to the contest. God versus Satan. Satan doing his worst against Job to expose the chink in his armor of loyalty. When the money and the wealth ran dry, he says, in effect, Job will drop God like a hot potato. He only serves you and he's only loyal to you because you bless him. And then on the other side, God showing through Job's testimony to his wife and to his friends that he intended to stick with God no matter what God did to him. Which is a different scenario than Satan's idea. We have it in Job's own words. Job 13, so we're a third of the way through the book. And here's what Job says. He's been suffering for who knows how many weeks, days, whatever. He talks about God and he says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I can just hear God saying to Satan, Did you hear that? <laughs> Did you hear that? He's saying, Even if I take his life, he's still going to trust me. Had nothing to do with 7,000 cattle, 500 yoke of oxen, tons of friends, a large family. Again, later on in the book, Job 19, now we're further back. We're halfway through the book. <coughs> halfway through his suffering. God hasn't relented. The man is still going through it all. You can be sure as you read the book that it intensifies. Here's what he says. Job writing. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed. You see, he's, he doesn't think that he's going to survive the trial. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another. And oh, how my heart yearns within me. Job 19, verse 25 through 27. Satan, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Even if I strip him of his flesh, even if he dies and decays, his hope is in me. Now this doesn't sound like a man who serves God for money. It doesn't sound like a man who's ready to curse God and die. No, it sounds like the man at the very beginning of his trial who said these words, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job 1, verse 21 and 2. That's after Satan took away all of his livestock, killed all of his servants, killed all of his children, and reduced him to abject poverty and next to the absolute ruin of his health. 
Here we catch a glimpse of Job's philosophy of life, and in particular of his spiritual life. He came into this world, as we all do, naked and without any fortune. So if he leaves this world in that same condition, he's no better, and he's no worse for wear. God has done him no ill. God remains God. Job remains Job. Now let me tell you, there's a perspective on life. God, you don't owe me anything. I came in naked, I can go out naked. I came in poor, I can go out poor. But there's something more here. And it is this, that Job counts God worth more than family or friends, or fortune, or material blessings. Job is hurting, but he's not forsaken. He has God, which is a whole lot more than can be said for all of his contemporaries. And so if he leaves this world penniless and naked, he's still blessed. He's still rich towards God. Well, Satan was sorely defeated in this whole contest. Job maintained his integrity, kept his faith. God's opinion of Job remained unchallenged. Job remained loyal. Job remained faithful. His fortune and his family were restored to him, as you know from the end of the book. And Satan, and the worst, the worst that he could inflict, lie defeated in the dust, licking his wounds, and proven once again that his assessments of God and his people are deeply flawed. He's called the slanderer. That's what Satan's name means. Devil is just a synonym. It also means slanderer. He accuses the brethren before God day and night. Now the Apostle Paul wants you and I to know something about the trials with which we contend. And this is what he writes. He says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, not if it comes, But when it comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, that is put on the full armor of God, after you've done everything, then stand. Ephesians 6, verse 12 and 13. This is the new covenant promise equivalent to what occurred with Job. The Ephesian church was concerned about the suffering that Paul was enduring in prison and what, they might, what that might mean for them as followers of Christ. Well, they put our leader in prison. What's going to happen to us? What was God up to? What, what would be the outcome? Were the forces of evil winning? And so Paul explains God's purpose. This is also written to the Ephesians. He writes, his, referring to God, his intent was that now... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities 
in the heavenly realm. What? We fight not against flesh and blood. The guy that lives next door to you that keeps giving you flack is not your enemy. It's the evil one in the heavenly realms. And what is God doing? He's showing that the wisdom of God is going to overpower the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him and through faith in Him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you which are your glory. Ephesians 3, 10 through 13. You ever look upon suffering as your glory? He's saying that. Look upon your trials. Look upon my trials for you as your glory and a way to display God's wisdom to all the sinister rulers in the heavenly realms who believe who, who believe that allegiance to God is doomed. It's, it's the same contest. It's Job all over again. Satan versus God. Have you been praying for that pastor in Iran that is sentenced to death for converting to Christianity? You should be. His name is Nader Khani. That's his last name. Yusef, Yusef Nader Khani. 34-year-old man, father of two, accused of apostasy in Iran. Well, that didn't fly with the international community. They came up, well, what, he's guilty of rape and other crimes. And he's been sentenced. And one sentence has been passed, and it has in his case, Execution may occur at any time without notice. You're not given a day for execution. They can just walk into your cell and take you out and execute you. Nate Arcani's attorney said that they believe Iran has toned down the rhetoric because of international pressure on Iran concerning violation of human rights and religious freedom. According to Sharia Muslim law, apostates must be put to death. You forsake the Muslim faith, your death sentence. Fox Report, and I'm reading here, dozens of human rights groups along with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, 89 members of Congress, the leaders from European Union, France, Great Britain, Mexico, and Germany have condemned Iran for arresting Nader Khani and were calling for his quick release, end quote. And a House resolution is scheduled for a vote in Washington condemning Iran for the arrest and condemnation of this pastor. Who would have thought that the arrest, trial, and condemnation of an Iranian Christian pastor would have such an impact on world politics? And we might ask the question, why, as a Christian pastor now, is he undergoing this trial? God, what are you up to? Mordecai's words to Esther are appropriate here. 
Mordecai said to her, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. For such a time as this. I'll tell you what's going on, at least what's on the surface. This pastor was given the opportunity to recant his Christian faith and affirm belief in the Muslim faith, and he declined. And when he declined, he got the death sentence. And when he got the death sentence, public opinion began to be to rise, so that the whole world can now begin to see the hatred and the non-toleration of the Muslim faith with regard to any other faith, not only Christianity. And it's bringing the issue that was hidden in the background, it's bringing it to the foreground. You say, well, they might kill him, Fred. Yeah. But he will have done God's work. A mighty work. One reason you suffer is to prove God true and Satan a liar. That's one. Secondly, to advance your sanctification. Our text brings before us a hurting apostle, the Apostle Paul. The hurt is physical but it is spiritually motivated. It is another occasion of God in the trial, but using Satan as the tormentor. Within context, Paul talks about this tremendous vision that he saw in heaven when he was caught up into the third heaven, he calls it, and he saw and heard things that he was not permitted to write about. The third heaven is a place beyond our immediate atmosphere. It was said of Jesus' ascension that he, and I'm reading scripture, that he passed through the heavens, Hebrews 4 verse 14, that he ascended higher than all the heavens, Ephesians 4 verse 10, and is now exalted above the heavens, Hebrews 7 verse 26. Paul calls it, in our text, paradise, verse 4. It's the very word, designating the place that Jesus referenced to the thief on the cross when he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, verse 43. Same Greek word. I read the account in a Christian magazine in which a woman claimed to have died and gone to heaven, and then she proceeded to describe heaven as a place of serenity and peace. And there she met and talked with her grandmother, who gave her instructions on how she was going to go back to earth and how she should live her life when she would be restored to health, etc., etc. Again, just this week, Dr. Mary Neal, an orthopedic surgeon, is pushing her book entitled To Heaven and Back in which she claims to have died in a kayak drowning in Chile. And in her words, I listened to her interview, in her words was greeted by 10 or 12 spirits. Ooh. 
That made me shudder just to think of that. Who said that she must return to earth to become, get this now, the spiritual rock for her family and to tell her story in order to help people find God. Now these kind of stories hit the tabloids on occasion. And let me tell you something. They are all bogus. All of them. Had such people ever gone to heaven wherein God dwells, if God would not per permit the Apostle Paul to tell anything that he saw or heard, what makes you think he would permit such of others? Whatever the experience, I'm not saying they didn't have an experience, but whatever their experience, their experience is different from re the reality that they're talking about. Paul was not permitted to talk about such things. And we have books and books in the New Testament penned by the Apostle Paul where he talks about many, many spiritual things. But God said, this is one subject you're not going to talk about. And, now, as to being sent back from death to testify of God and, and how to come to know Him. Do you remember the account of the rich man who died and Lazarus the beggar who died? Lazarus entered into his peace, but the rich man, who was an unbeliever, was being tormented in hell. And from hell he made this request. I beg you, Father, and he's referring to Abraham, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He's here. Lazarus is here. Send him back. This will be a great testimony. My brothers will listen. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Moses and the prophets. He's referring to the scriptures. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. The prophets stand for everything that was written after that. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Luke 16, verse 27 through 31. Do we need people coming back from heaven to tell us how to get right with God? You got it right here in your lap. God is telling us in His book how to be reconciled to Him. How to deal with your sin. Who Christ is. Why He's come. What you need to do in reference to Christ. And so Paul witnessed heavenly visions and he was permitted to see wonderful and marvelous things but not permitted to disclose what he saw. Even more revealing is verse 7 of our text. To keep me from becoming conceited, he's writing, because of these surpassingly great revelations. 
There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now many have tried to guess what this thorn in the flesh might have been. Something, oh well, was his poor eyesight. Or some other ailment. Something that bugged him. Truth be known, we don't know. So anything else is just conjecture. All we know is that the thorn was ministered by a messenger of Satan. Who's that? That's a demon. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Whatever it was, God used a demon to harass Paul. So wait a minute, Paul is apostle. Yeah. But to keep me from being conceited about these marvelous revelations, to keep me humble, not swelled-headed, this is what God did. You all know that a thorn is not a life-threatening thing, but it sure is annoying. Splinter, thorn, right? Every time you turn around, there's that prick of pain. You try to think, and there it is again. You try to move, and ouch! The ouch is there, ever nagging, nagging. Paul believed that his ministry was being severely impaired and hampered by this, and so he pleaded with the Lord. It's in our text. He pleaded with the Lord on three separate occasions for God to remove this thorn. But all three times God said, no, not going to do it. Here's what he said. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power, my power is made perfect in weakness, verse 8. You see, Paul might have tended to become swelled-headed because of the extraordinary revelations that God gave him of heaven and other things, but the thorn kept him humble. The thorn kept him weak. The thorn was a constant reminder wherein greatness and strength lie. Where did it lie? Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. My weakness. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Verse 9 and 10. The trials that God sends your way, Paul's way, advance your sanctification. Help you to stop relying upon self-strength and all of those things, which are weak by comparison to what God does in a person's life. And to trust God. Thirdly, a third reason for trials is to teach us in the school of hard knocks what you refuse to learn in the school of biblical instruction. You ever say of uh, somebody, boy, he's a hard case. Or she's a hard case. Usually what we mean is, you know, nothing we say to them seems to get through. They seem to be impervious to instruction, to admonition, to teaching. 
Listen to the psalmist. The psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Psalm 119, verse 67 and 68. So I'm just sailing along through life, not giving much thought to God. And then, wham! God comes in and afflicts me. And now I obey your word. And a few verses later, four verses later, he gives this analysis. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Psalm 119, verse 71, 72. Now, there may be an indication here that what the psalmist considered most precious was his assessed silver and gold. He didn't put much value in the treasure trove hidden in God's Word. Riches that save the soul and feed the soul and quiet the soul and encourage the soul and remind us of Jesus' warning. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Mark 8, verse 36. We don't know. But he's saying, you know, before I was afflicted, I went astray. And then he says, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Are you running the rat race? Busy here, busy there, everywhere you're busy. Busy making a living, busy paying bills, busy living for pleasure, busy consumed with health issues, family issues, personal issues, hurting in so many dimensions in your life. Might God be using these things to call you back to Him, to beckon to you, where have you been? What are your priorities? Jesus' words come to mind. Life is more than food. Life is more than food. The body more than clothes. Luke 12, verse 13. But the way we live sometimes, we would not think that. One day after Jesus had taught some pretty heavy-duty teaching about His work of atonement for sinners, John tells us, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. John 6, verse 66. In other words, the teaching was considered too difficult. They wanted candy cotton, not meat and potatoes. They had not bargained that Jesus would demand that they think and consider and meditate and chew and digest and seek answers for the hard questions of life. And so on that same occasion, John goes on to relate, Then Jesus said to the twelve, the inner circle, Do you also want to go away? Verse 67. But Simon Peter answered, Lord... <laughs> To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Brethren, the easy road is the broad road that leads to hell. And so when we take that path in disobedience, God sometimes sends trials, can I say hard knocks, to teach us what we refuse to learn in the school of biblical instruction. 
that namely in his word are the words of eternal life in the teachings of Christ. And you can spend your whole life, spend your whole life, excuse me, spinning your wheels, striving after things that's wood, hay, and stubble and not precious at all. So sometimes God puts you in trials to sanctify you to bring you to Him. And then lastly, quickly, to bring glory to God. I really think that all of our trials have this as their goal. When Jesus and His disciples came upon the blind, man born blind, His disciples asked Jesus the first question that pops into our heads as well when we see such heartache. They ask, Who sinned? Lord, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? John 9, verse 2. They postulated but two conclusions as to why a man was born with a deformity of no sight. Either, postulation one, either he had sinned, now just think about that, before birth he sinned, hello, Read Romans 9, Jacob and Esau, God loving one and not the other, before they had any chance to do right is right or wrong. But that was one of their postulations. Or maybe his parents sinned and, the, and, and, and they got a blind child as their punishment. Uh, there's another scripture that says God will not visit to the children the punishment due the sins of their fathers. So these guys aren't too good, too good on the theology part. But here's Jesus' answer. Neither this, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened. This blindness. This happened. So that the work of God might be displayed in his life. John 9 verse 3. So from birth to adult, all those years converging on one moment in time when Jesus would place mud on his eyes and command him to wash in a certain pool. And we read, so the man went and washed and came home seeing. John 9 verse 7. Brethren, your trials, whatever your trials can result in the glory of God, depending on how you handle them. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they knew about this blind man. So now he's got his sight back and he's going everywhere. <laughs> Praising God. Got his sight back. But they were hell-bent on branding Jesus as a sinner. And so they say to the blind man, you need to give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. <laughs> now, now just think about this. Here's the blind man's answer. He's not been taught anything about Jesus. Not a thing. He's just experienced. Here's the blind man's answer. Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. 
we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. John 9, verse 30 through 33. And their response was, You were altogether born in sin, and are you lecturing us? And they threw him out of the church. They excommunicated him. And Jesus later found him and brought him into a true understanding of Christ as Savior. Here's a man who could see through the trial that God was there in it. God was there in it. You are the people of God. You've been a Christian how long? Five years, 10 years, 20 years, more than that? 30 years, 40 years? Can you not see God in the trial? Can you not give God the glory for how He cares for you, how He loves you, and how He intends to get glory out of the things that you suffer? This man did it right. He says, well, this is a remarkable thing. You Pharisees, you teachers, you rabbis, you don't know if this man's from God. But here I am, looking through these orbs that have been dark all these years. And you don't know that this guy's from God. Well, I'm here to tell you he is. I'm here to prove it to you. And they said, you're out. We're not going to hear any of that. And they went on with their plot to kill Christ. When God gets the glory, the nations rage. Oh, Heavenly Father, how we thank you and praise you for your word. You're in the trials of our lives. Help us to see that. Help us to see what this poor blind man could see. Wow, just a few hours of restoring his sight and he was able to put the pieces together and praise God for Jesus Christ and his word. In our trials you are out for our good and your glory. Help us to see that and to love you for it. Pray your blessing upon your word for those struggling today with all kinds of pain. We pray that we'll begin to see some of the reasons. We've only outlined a few here this morning. Some of the reasons as to why we suffer. May we not let you down, Lord. May we not malign you in any way. May our testimony not be marred because of our poor way of handling the trials of life. May we look unto Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, and trust that He knows what He's doing. Help us to believe and to act in faith for the glory of Christ. Amen.